0: Hey, Crime Curious listeners, I've got a new obsession for you, Body to Burial. Body to Burial is a new podcast highlighting the various professionals that work a body's trail from the crime scene to the final resting ground, from 911 dispatchers and crime scene cleaners to coroners and criminal profilers. Through casual conversations, Body to Burial explores the intricacies of the professions, and examines the physical, mental, and emotional toll that comes from making a living off of crime and death. Check out this great new show at BodyToBurial.com and anywhere that you get your podcasts. Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge.
1: If you are sensitive to expletives anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you.
0: Are you sick of giving the special people in your life the same old lame gifts year after year? Well, I am here to help you friends. You know, if you're an avid listener of this podcast, at the beginning of each episode, I shake a genuine kangaroo scrotum sack for good luck. Now you can own your own genuine handmade kangaroo scrotum sack and not just a sack. Maybe you're looking for a bottle opener, a unique back scratcher, whatever it is that you're looking for. You can find it at rueballs.com and enter code CRIME10 for 10% off your order. That's R-O-O-B-A-L-L-S dot com, promo code CRIME10, for 10% off your order. Keep it curious and keep it shaken. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Sharnel. And I'm Megan. And Megan, yes. welcome to our two-year anniversary, damn near... <sighs> If my calculations are correct. Now,
1: we've only been dating for just most of the year.
0: I know. But Crime Curious. Since July. Since, yep. Yep. But Crime Curious has been on air because of our lovely listeners for 2 years. years. Congratulations you guys. Yes, thank you guys so much for bringing us along this far. We've evolved. We There's have. been many changes, wonderful, and we're still we're still in our infancy. We yeah. still
1: walk around and trip over our own feet, fall sure on the do. carpet, cry, and then stop when someone gives us chocolate.
0: And fart when it's quiet. Correct.
1: Yep. Yep. Only when it's quiet.
0: And that's it. And in the most inconvenient times. No,
1: what has happened, I think, over the advent of these two years is um, we've become exceptionally spiritual and into voodoo. <laughs> we have. So I'm going to shake the bones. And
0: I'm going to shake the king sack. Because we're going to get our, I believe this is going to be episode 199 and 200. Yes. This is, is two for 200. Two for 200 for our two year anniversary. Couldn't have fucking planned that better if we tried. Everything And we really in twos. didn't try. It I just. Love it. And you, you get the two of
1: us, and we are amazing. Yes. We're stroking our own egos today.
0: It's, it's been a long journey and I think we all deserve little pats on the back. You listeners, especially, we want to take a moment to thank you, um, especially our Patreons. You know, I know you guys probably get sick of hearing us say, hey, join Patreon, but. <laughs> hey, jump
1: over to Patreon so you can see some funny stuff. Yeah.
0: And get extra content. Yeah. And, but you got to understand, um, I guess, kind of ask yourself, is there something that you do every single week that you put hours and hours into for free? Yeah, every week I There's, put on
1: makeup and I do my hair
0: yourself for right? all of you, yeah, you I go. put
1: time into every, myself
0: every, you do you do
1: so this is putting time into ourselves too
0: We put time into the podcast and um, our patreons give keep us on air we, they give us an energy exchange essentially right like they exchange money for extra content that we create using our energy, but also it costs us money to create, you know, the platforms cost money. The books that we read cost money. Our equipment costs money. Our website costs money. Everything costs money. And so our Patreons are who keep us, have kept us on air. They're the reason we've been able to keep creating because they exchange their money for our um, ability to create and use our money to do all of this in our energy and time. And so Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, if you've you know not noticed by now, we release free episodes once a week, but our Patreons get more than one episode a week. They get several episodes each month, so a couple episodes a week instead of the one episode. So early
1: episodes, they do. So they have, they're getting things about a week, week and a half. Sometimes oh gosh, before now General right now Public. we're
0: super ahead. Yeah. So they're getting stuff like three weeks ahead right now, but. Just know that um, that that's why that we are releasing more content to our patreons because they keep us on air and they help us with all of this exchange, the money exchange and energy exchange and all of that. So, but at the same token, if you're not in a place where you can join Patreon or donate to us, cause we do have the, the donation, um, yes. buy me a coffee. That link is in our show notes as well. So if you just want to donate to help keep us on air, thank you so much. We Charnel uses that. that to do
1: research I and do. to get research for our books and things like that for us to research.
0: Sure so. do. Sure do. So, That's super helpful. But even just listening to us, subscribing to us on social media, commenting on our stuff on social media, all of that stuff helps us. So thank you. Just thank you guys because we're here two years later because of all of you. And when you share us with your friends and talk about, oh, I really love this podcast, all of that is putting... Good things forward in the universe for us, and so we sincerely thank you for that. Thank you so much. So, can I say something before you start with this case, please?
1: This is the first time, listeners, that Sharnel is bringing a case that I know about. So she's not surprising me. She's not shocking me today. Um, we we both looked up uh, this this case intensively. Sharnel did all the research, however, let me tell you that. Um, and some pretty good interviews and such were conducted as well, um, privately. <clears throat> Excuse me, privately. This is um, an ongoing case, mm-hmm. and I just want to preface here because you guys all know because of what I do um, that sometimes I have to be careful about my opinions and mm-hmm. what I say. Um, so keep that in mind as I'm making commentary throughout this. But I'm really excited to have Charnel present this two-parter to you. Um, if anybody, if any family deserves to have a case presented, this is the one.
0: Yeah, most definitely. This, was, this case was brought to our awareness by our friend Donna who sends us wonderful case suggestions, and she got me in touch with the father of the victim. I have done several phone interviews with this man. We've cried together. We have spoken for hours on end. Um, I have to tell you that presenting a case that you have spoken so many times with the victim's parent Makes the research much different, Megan.
1: Well, you just feel like you have an emotional connection with the victim I absolutely do. Without ever having met this young lady, you know her.
0: Yes, and I'm going to make sure that you all do as well. This is a very special episode in my heart, two parts actually, in my heart. And so I hope that it it really resonates with you all and that it leaves you guys um, feeling feeling a certain way okay um i'm going to kind of i had to kind of script this beginning out because i knew that if i spoke freely my emotions would take would over would take over because i am emotionally invested in this case because i've I yes. have listened to her father cry. Right. Okay, I know. And this is
1: one of those situations where it's like, don't cry because if you cry, then I'm going to yes. cry. Yep. And then we're all going to cry. I'm going to try very,
0: and very the dogs hard are going to lick
1: us while we're trying to record. And it's just going to be <laughs> right. a love fest Because they here. know
0: that we're crying and right. upset. Yes. Something's wrong. Yep. And we, it's just when you've, when you've shared that experience with someone, yeah, I tell you, it, it, it brings a whole different aspect here. So I want you all to know that, the, the victim's father is named Larry. His name's Larry Young. He has emailed me every piece of evidence that we're going to talk about in these next two episodes. What we present to you is not hearsay. It's not speculation, and if it is, we will. I will insert that that it if it is. Okay. This was
1: all validly, legally obtained information. Yep. Uh, Larry followed what he was supposed to do in terms of Freedom of Information Act requests mm-hmm. to get all of this. Um, so this is all stuff that you could go and get as well. Yes. Uh, so I just want to make that very clear.
0: And in Larry, in my very first conversation with him, made it very clear that. I am not telling you my daughter's story based on my emotional connection with my daughter and what I see is right. I'm telling you the facts after I finally was able to get a hold of the case when it was released of what I found in the injustice here that has happened. He was very careful about letting me know I am not presenting this information that can't be then backed up by actual Evidence. Evidence. Yep. So we are only presenting facts that are verified by experts and medical and medical experts. However, this case has not been explored in court. So therefore, any information that we present is all under the term allegedly when we speak of motives or people. Okay, um, and that's why we are covering this case because we need people to know that this case needs to be explored in court. Please. This is one of those cases that's going to leave you feel angered, sad for those involved, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully inspired to take action. This is the case of Molly Marie Young. Megan and I had actually completed a two-hour interview, gosh, it's been a couple of months ago now, <laughs> it has. with a detective on this case. Um, we became a part of this case in ways that other research hasn't opened up and allowed us to before. And so... Sit down, everybody, and get ready. <clears throat> Buckle up. Buckle up. If you're a spiritual person, you may want to put up some um, energy blockages so that you're not left feeling so angry. Here. This is a comfy
1: um, blanket and a cup of coffee kind of case for yep. me, and possibly grab my cat and force her to sit on my lap. Like yes, seriously, exactly. it's you're, a it's a comfort case. You're
0: going to need um, need your coping skills for this one because that's it's gonna that's make almost you, feel...
1: you guys. That's almost nine minutes of us preparing you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. For exactly. what you're getting.
0: Yep. So, I'm first, as always, gonna start talking about Molly first, right? Yeah. So, hear about lovely Molly. Molly, and when we post pictures of her, you look her up, oh my God, she's gorgeous. Just this gorgeous, blonde, young girl. Beautiful. She was born April 15th, 1990, in Jackson, Illinois, to Larry and Kathy. Now, Larry and Kathy are no longer together. And Larry is now remarried to what he described to me as a very patient, supportive, and loving woman named Linda. He credits her for how he has made it through these almost 11 years without Molly and without justice for her. So I'm going to read you the biography that Larry sent to us about Molly. I love it. Three, and this is, I'm quoting now, everybody. Three words to describe Molly Marie Young would be unique, compassionate, and talented. Molly had a great passion for the arts. She loved photography, music, and films. She had a fun, whimsical side to her personality. For her 21st birthday, she decided to play hide-and-seek in the park with a group of friends instead of doing the typical bar scene. Molly was the youngest in her family. However, she often gave her sister's advice because she was wise beyond her years. She had a fondness for rainbows and animals and she saw beauty in ordinary things. She was very interested in politics and current events. She was also interested in many different cultures and enjoyed traveling. She graduated from Marion High School in 2008. During her high school years, she won several art competitions, and her artwork was featured on the cover of a local college's magazine. During her junior year of high school, Scholastic chose Molly's photographic art among 77,000 entries, wow. and she was flown to New York to receive her award on the stage of Carnegie Hall. The next year, Molly's photograph, which was titled Time Out, and depicted a chair in the corner of a dilapidated room, was chosen alongside only 30 others nationwide to be displayed in the U.S. Department of Justice. I Which love I this very ironic. Larry,
1: I need a copy of this picture for my office.
0: I did see this. Picture. I'm going to find it's it and buy really it.
1: Really cool. That's great.
0: Molly was given a private tour of the White House and received her personalized letter from Senator Barack Obama, Obama, commending her for being the only student from Illinois chosen for this honor. End quote. As you can tell, Molly was a talented young lady with plans for her future and her entire life ahead of her. Now, this is going to be an episode where we tell you what happened first, and then we're going to work backwards, okay? Just three weeks before Molly's 22nd birthday, on March twenty-fourth, two 2012, Molly was found in a Carbondale, Illinois apartment that was occupied by her ex-boyfriend, Richie Minton, and his roommate, Wes Romack, with a gunshot wound to her head. According to police reports and records submitted by Larry Young to us, This is how things started. On March 24th, 2012, at 9.02 a.m. in Carbondale, Illinois, Wes Romack, that is um, Richie Minton's roommate, called 911 and handed his phone to Molly's ex-boyfriend, Richie Minton, who then reported Molly's death as a drug overdose. We have the 911 calls, and we are going to play them for you right now. 911 what's emergency
2: hi uh, we have a person of my living facility who we believe to be dead okay where's that at uh, it's uh we are, we're at 500 uh here hello hello hey i'm at 500 Northwest Ridge drive apartment a2 okay and who is this to you uh, it's my ex girlfriend. And how old is she? Uh, she's twenty two. Okay, and is she not breathing at all? No, she I woke up and she's covered in blood. She's overdosed, she bled out through the nose. And you said she's twenty three? Twenty two. Twenty two. What's her name? Nine hey, one one, what is your emergency? Hey, I'm gonna send a name here. But they have a ten seventy nine. amber Yeah. This is Richie, my girlfriend just committed suicide. Can you send an ambient or can you send a car over at five hundred North West Ridge? Apartment A two. A two? Yeah. Yep, we'll be on our way. Thanks, Amber. Alrighty. Bye. Can I can I go ahead and hang up? Yeah, I'll go ahead and hang up. I'll go ahead and send an ambulance that way though. Great. You're welcome.
0: All right. That wow. Hi, Amber. Hi, Amber. Uh, My girlfriend committed suicide. Is bleeding out through the nose. Drug overdose. But she's got a gunshot wound to her head.
1: They didn't know that then. Hmm.
0: So then, I believe we have the second 911 call.
1: Okay. Do you know how long? I can't remember between the two 911 calls. Is it minutes?
0: do have the... It is. um, Several minutes, actually. This second call happened... On a private line.
1: So, m- most of you, some of you know that 911, those emergency services, there's always the um, emergency number, but then there's almost always a private number too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you can call for non emergency things. And obviously, somebody who is familiar with, as he seems to be, with Amber, um, knew to call a private line. Well, and or I had a number two, And call I a can tell line. you why. I know.
0: Um, and I will tell you why. Richie Minton, who you heard, the interjected and said his address, where he's at, and then when um, they went through to dispatch and he said, hey, Amber, the reason he did that is because Richie Minton works for dispatch, and he was supposed to be at work at this point in time in his day. So he does know this person, this Amber person, Because personally. he was supposed to be there working with her that day. Correct.
2: I have enough leave. Hey, Amber. Yeah. Hey, um... You sent the sergeant. She didn't know I uh, just found my gun laying underneath her. <gasps> okay. Is it Molly? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've got the sergeant on the way there. All right. Thanks, Amber. You're- I'm sorry that I'm late. Hey, no. Don't worry about it, Richie. It's, it's not a problem. All right. Thanks, Amber. All right. You're welcome. They're on their way. All right. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, so what you just heard was the second 911 call made by Richie to the private uh, dispatch line where he is correcting the first 911 call that was made at 9.02 a.m. where they had reported that it was a drug overdose. She was bleeding out of her nose, and it was a drug overdose. Then the second call that was made to the um, private line was made at 9.10 Okay. So the first call came in at 9:02 where they said she's overdosed. It's a drug overdose. She's bleed, bled out through her nose. And then 9:10, he calls the private line and says it's a gunshot gun wound, wound cuz I found my gun underneath her body. All right? Okay. So that's the scene that we've set for you. You guys have heard now heard the the tape. We will come back to these phone calls. Um, yeah. probably a couple of times. Well, because you I have imagine. a lot of questions right away. You do. Just you do. with the
1: eight, you- eight minutes in between phone mm-hmm. calls, you know, how is it that you were able to discover from one moment to the next that it was you went from a drug overdose to gunshots? <clears throat> would you, knowing that the person is deceased and having called 911, be doing an investigation, moving a body around mm-hmm. to if he found a gun under her.
0: Excellent point.
1: So mm-hmm. just wondered, and, and perhaps some of you out there would. Maybe you'd be moving all the body all around and things like that. But I, I just, um, it's, it's questionable for me as to whether that is how a typical reaction yep. should occur.
0: And we're going to go through, because we have the access to the evidence of all the phone pings, what was happening between 902 and 910, okay? We'll get to that. But there's some things I want to just point out right now that we know. And Molly's toxicology report showed only prescription medication, not above, it was actually quite low, not above therapeutic levels at all. There was no drugs or alcohol in her system. The coroner determined the approximate time of death to be 4.45 a.m., which was over four hours before the 911 call. Molly's wound was typical of execution style. It did happen in Minton's bedroom. And I need you guys to use your mind's eye to be able to picture the logistics of of this, okay? Because I'm going to tell you everything about her gunshot wound. This is
1: your trigger alert.
0: It is. Molly's gunshot wound was in the top left side of her head, okay? So picture your top left side of your head. It was a downward angle with no exit wound. And it was going, it was backwards. The the trajectory of of the bullet is backwards. Molly is right-handed. So I'd like you to picture, take your physically take your right hand and picture how you would execution style right like we're talking just kind of above your left ear, mid midway, back backwards now flip your flip your hand backwards
1: oh god that's hard like i'm i'm straining my thumb muscle right now
0: and then pull the trigger
1: well i don't know that i could just okay. just being honest depending on the type to, of gun
0: sure it's a pistol mm-hmm. Okay. yep i want you to picture the um oh, and now just, my shoulder hurts just I'm kind of right just kind of the logistics i okay. want you all to physically take your hand and picture those logistics of how you would work that Within minutes of the 911 call, Richie Minton called his dad and asked him to contact their family lawyer. These are not speculation, remember. And here is some information that I want you to re- keep in mind throughout all of this. Ep- these episodes. Richie Minton was a Carbondale, Illinois police dispatcher, and he was supposed to be to work that morning at 7 a.m. And as you heard on the 911 call, He actually apologized in a very calm voice to the 911 dispatcher, I believe her name's Amber, on the phone um, for being late to work.
1: I'm not going to be in. Sorry, mate.
0: Mm -hmm. When the police arrived, um, Richie Minton refused multiple times to be interviewed or to sign a statement about what happened. He immediately refused to give consent to search his apartment, cell phone, or vehicle. He refused to give DNA or take a drug test. All that stuff's within his legal right. Molly lay dead for seven more hours on Minton's bedroom floor while search warrants had to be obtained by the state of the, the Illinois State Police. Minton is still the only one who refuses to cooperate, so he continues to be the only one that's named the suspect because any other suspects at this point, Megan, have been cleared.
1: They've been interviewed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Molly's dad, Larry, told me that before Larry himself, or her mother molly's mother were even called to be informed that their daughter had passed away mr minton and his family and family lawyer were all at the police station rallied around him
1: so they did take him in
0: he met them at the at the police station all yep right. several hours later mhm the family is left in the dark throughout the investigation this, if you've listened to our episode on the sex trafficker's wife, I think you can understand how that happens. The police are working the case and they don't share their information. Right. You know? And that's, that is that is not a ding on the police. It's not, you don't it's,
1: give evidence, in, information about interviews or anything in an active case, in an no, active investigation.
0: Guys, I do investigations every day for my current job. I When I'm interviewing people... The victims', parents, all of that stuff. I don't share with them information that might convolute their answers. I need truthful answers, right? I don't I don't give away and the my truth as they see it from Correct. their current
1: perspective because you could be telling the truth but be corrupted by other information that goes into your brain. Mm-hmm. That's why we need the best, most accurate info.
0: exactly. exactly. So this, you know, I just you just have to know that, Molly's family does not have even any of the information that I just gave you that we now have many years later, right? They're in the
1: dark. Larry finds out that the suspect and the suspect's parents have been down to the jail before he even knew she had died.
0: You have to understand Larry doesn't even know at this point in time that he's a suspect because he's being told his daughter committed suicide.
1: All right. So did law enforcement contact him via phone or go to his house I and let him know?
0: believe that it was phone first. Yes. And he lived like a half an hour away, 45 minutes away, something like that. And so he had to go to the police station, of course, and he arrived still confused. Like that's what I, my next sentence was. They don't know what's going on, but they know Molly and they know that Molly was happy that Molly was not suicidal, had shown absolutely no signs whatsoever of being suicidal. Um, So they're very confused. And then they get more confused when they see her ex-boyfriend, and it was very recent, ex-boyfriend in a matter of weeks, like a couple of weeks, okay, Not, not anything, you know, too not years or anything yeah. like that. So but like, Mr. Minton had been a part him. of their life. Yes. He yep. was
1: their daughter's long-term right. serious boyfriend.
0: boyfriend. And so they um, see him and see that he's got a lawyer and his family's there. And they're like, why is that happening when I'm just now finding out about her death? So now I'm going to take you through the timeline of the main events that involved Molly's end of life from police records that were FOIA'd after years of requests and appeals, and I will get to the family's FOIA struggles and what Larry has been able to accomplish at a law, a legislative level in, in this s- state state of Illinois. Yes, it's been amazing. If we all have a dad like Larry in a family like Molly's someday to fight for us, boy, that that's all you could ask for in life. I mean, they've really, really fought for her. Um, So we're going to start back all the way on March 2nd. Now, the incident took place on March 24th. Right. But I'm going to take you to March 2nd, 2012. On this day, we now know, and remember, it's all confirmed through records, Molly tested positive for pregnancy at her doctor's office. At 8.47 that night, the suspect, and the only suspect left in this case at this point in time, posted a quote from Son of Sam, which read, quote, huge drops of lead poured down upon her head until she was dead, end quote. He posted that on his Facebook page. Interesting. Later that night, Molly texted a friend, quote, my life, my life, and explained, end quote, and explained an ongoing text argument that she was having with the suspect. All the texts... Between Richie Mitten, the suspect, and Molly, from January 17th to March 9th, 2012, were missing from Molly's phone when it was taken as evidence, and all the suspect's texts and calls from January 17th until after the 911 call on March 24th, 2012, were missing from his phone when it was finally a uh, warrant. A warrant was signed, and it was taken as evidence.
1: What a strange accidental deletion on both of those phones.
0: Yes, but we know that those messages existed because they can't be deleted
1: from the cloud,
0: from the the phone records, from the phone company. Right. Mm-hmm. There's
1: those um, computer phone uh, forensic analysis. Sometimes they can bring up those that are deleted, but there's still a trail or a track that they happened.
0: Yes, exactly. So we do not know, guys, the content right. that was in these messages. But we have the paper trail to tell us that they existed. And the fact that they were gone when the phones were taken in, into evidence is suspicious, it is, in my it is, opinion. It is concerning, concerning in mind. Mm-hmm. Then March 9th, 2012 because of the suspect's mentally abusive relationship, Molly decided to terminate the pregnancy by taking two pills prescribed by a clinic. According to family and friends, the suspect took her to the clinic.
1: All right. Okay. And so they had discussed the um unplanned pregnancy
0: mm-hmm. and they had they made a decision. Okay. He took her to the clinic. Their decision was made. The decision was made and she um terminated the terminated pregnancy. pregnancy. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. March seventeenth, two thousand and twelve, according to friends and family and tax records, Molly broke up with the suspect for good and got her belongings from his apartment when he wasn't there. According to the roommate Wes Romack, the suspect was very upset that Molly ended the pregnancy and broke up with him. That was according to court, you know, to police interviews because uh, the roommate cooperated, okay. with the police for the interviews.
1: Who was the only other person in the apartment that we're aware of.
0: Yes. Yep. That we're aware of. Based off of
1: current investigation because the police have only been allowed to talk to the roommate. Yep.
0: Exactly. Okay. So we know March 17th, they broke up. She got her her things and there are text messages that took place according to records. We just don't know what they said on on that day, but friends and family and Wes, the roommate- Confirmed this. Yep, they broke up. March twenty first, two thousand and twelve. The suspect text sent a text to Molly that said, "Quote: I chose you over my friends. I don't have them anymore. You took my child away from me. Then you took, then you took you away from me. Now you took Wes away from me. I've got nothing." End quote. Now apparently, we know about that text message being sent because it was um, then shared. With the roommate.
1: She screenshotted Mm -hmm. it and shared it with her roommate?
0: Yep. So we know physically what that particular message said. You took
1: Wes from me? As in the roommate? Yes. Interesting.
0: Don't know. What we do know based on interviews, police interviews with family and friends, the suspect is extremely jealous of any contact that she had with other males. Okay. So it is possible that... Wes let her into the apartment to get her things. You know, as the roommate, I'm not sure. Well, but he just had a, having contact, it was not okay.
1: The boyfriend was feeling, um, Mr. Minton was feeling a, a certain way. <clears throat> he was upset that the pregnancy was ended. He was upset that she broke up perhaps and this is just speculation the roommate Wes was kind of being supportive of Molly's decision like hey dude it's over type sure. of thing and and I could see where you would feel betrayed right if your good friend and roommate was like dude you got to get over it she's she's done with you. she's moving on I Should. let her get her shit she yeah. came and got it from the apartment now move on yeah and you might feel betrayed yeah
0: very very possible I like that explanation you know that's a just that's a good hypothesis make, I'm trying to make sense that's of why hypothesis. he would
1: say she took Wes from him that's yep. it
0: on march 22nd so this is two days before molly attended a concert with a male friend of hers from approximately 9 p.m until 2 a.m
1: that's a normal concert time depending yep. on the type of concert
0: yep um in this male or you know 2 a.m this would have been march 23rd then they were at this concert and according to larry um her father Minton was, struggled. He was very jealous of this relationship that she had with this other male friend. So, she, so he certainly didn't like that they went to a concert together. Ironically, Megan, when Molly's computer was searched, somehow, even though she is at this concert, on her computer, there were searches placed um, that were seconds apart for suicide searches, how to commit suicide. On her on her computer. So on her desktop, like on her desktop. Her, okay, yeah. that she was interestingly enough, she is searching this on her home computer
1: when she's not there.
0: Correct. She's not there. she's at a concert and she's also having text conversations with Mr. Minton. So she's texting on her phone and searching on her, her computer and attending a concert all at the same time. We've seen stranger things happen when we talk about supernatural (laughs) and
1: dimensions, alternate dimensions.
0: Yep. All parallel universes. Again,
1: not starting an opinion here, but based off of what you're telling me, this does not seem physically
0: possible. Seems unlikely. It does seem unlikely. seems unlikely. Mm -hmm. Um, And it should be noted, Molly didn't move home with her friends. She, she, my understanding is that she had moved um, to an apartment with another friend, so It is very possible. We don't know if she got all of her belongings out. I don't know if her computer was still left. At Richie's house? At Richie's house. house. Mm -hmm. We don't know that information. We don't know where it was. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do know it wasn't at the concert with her.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, I I have uh, been to many concerts and I have never taken, mm -hmm. not even a laptop. Right. But a desktop for sure. Certainly not. And
0: and I believe the male friend confirmed that, uh, you know she did not have her laptop with her at the concert but she was also you know texting at the concert certainly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but she couldn't have possibly I don't know how many hands she had but I'm assuming it was only two and maybe that is a wrong assumption of me but I don't think she's using her hands to text and to search suicide uh, techniques on her computer No. Mm -hmm. so that now March 23rd so remember, in, up until 2 a.m., she's at that concert, March 23rd, then she goes to bed, whatever. March 23rd, throughout the day, Mr. Minton hung out with his friends while Molly was at her house, sick all night. All right? He went to a club. He had a few drinks. So she, this is after the concert. The day after the concert, she's not feeling well, and she's home. So the night of March 23rd, she's not out and about with people. She's not feeling good. But Mr. Minton went to a club. He had a few drinks from 12 to 2 a.m. This is now going into March 24th. All right. All right. 12 to 2 a.m. He's hanging out with friends. He then gave two of the friends a ride to their apartment and stayed there until about 2.55 a.m. on March 24th. Then three other friends decided to drive Mr. Minton back to his apartment, saying that they dropped him off around 3 a.m. on March 24th. One friend made the statement to the police that he wasn't super wasted. He wasn't throwing up drunk. He was not um, annihilated. Right. All right. He just was dropped off and was going in to go to bed.
1: Not irresponsible if he'd been drinking and partying to Mm -hmm. have somebody take you, even if you aren't annihilated.
0: Right. From phone records, we know that March 24th, between 2.06 and 2.26 a.m., Mr. Minton called a girl named Chloe Benedict 3 times and texted her 13 times. booty call. We don't know what that's about. So yeah, we don't know. We don't know why he called her or texted this this Chloe girl, but it happened. Then at two thirty-five a.m., Mr. Minton had an argument with Chloe in the parking lot of his friend's apartment. Oh, so where this, he was at? This Chloe
1: shows up to the apartment.
0: Chloe was was apparently there at the friend's apartment because we know that he was he stayed at his friend's apartment until about two fifty-five a.m. Mm-hmm. He was at the club until two a.m. and right. then went to this friend's apartment. He is apparently texting, calling this Chloe. She's there now. They're in this argument in the. Uh, in the parking parking lot. lot yep then at 2 36 a.m chelsea one of the friends that was in the apartment texted mr minton and uh, mr minton called chelsea so then chelsea's calling him three times all right before it, this is between two thirty seven a.m and 239 She called, like, so it's basically calling him over and over again until he answers his phone. Okay. And then at 2.52 a.m., Chelsea called him again, 2.54. He finally texts Chelsea back. And then at 2.54, he also sends a text to Molly. And then at 3.01, he calls Chloe. So he's got himself, as we, you know. Okay, I'm just I'm just taking you through what's going on here. Hey,
1: you know, on a typical night where no one dies, no judgment. True. I mean, your girlfriend broke right. up with you. You're maybe talking to somebody else, right? Then, Perhaps a failed attempt at a booty call. Then you call the old girlfriend because you miss her. Yes. I mean, yeah, I can see it all panning out right now.
0: Precisely. Then there's Chelsea, the random girl in the apartment that right. is like, okay, hey, you got to leave Chloe alone. Whatever it may be, <laughs> right. we don't know.
1: Chelsea's like, dude, you're being creepy. It's time for you to yeah, go home. Yeah, very
0: possible. <laughs> So between three a.m. and three thirty, Mister Minton called Molly three times, and he talked to her for twenty six minutes. And he also texted her. Somehow, we know he got her to come over to his apartment to help him. Okay, help him with what? Well, that we don't know because. But Molly did send a, a text. I believe it was to a friend. It, it, I, which of course um,
1: wasn't deleted, or at least the friend. Yeah, had Yeah, the her friend text. had it.
0: Yeah, exactly, to say that she was going over to help him. All right, Um, Wes Romack indicated in his interviews that Minton was suicidal and not in his right mind over Molly breaking up with him. And based on the police interview with Mr. Romack, the police lieutenant wanted to request a psychological evaluation due to the interview, the concerning interview that he had with Mr. Romack about this state that uh, his mind, you know, that Mr. Minton's mind was in
1: okay and this is potentially not just that night this had been since they broke up he had been in a state of um, crisis yes potentially suicidal and this was Wes's opinion based off of his observations
0: yep uh, by being his roommate exactly so between 347 and 349 Molly called Mr. Minton back three times um, with an answer the third time he finally answered the third time At approximately 4 a.m., Molly arrived at Mr. Minton's apartment in response to his repeated pleas for help. Shortly after she arrived, um, a struggle ensued as evidenced by two fresh six-inch scratches that Mr. Minton had um, on his back. But also um, his DNA was found under Molly's fingernails, and there were multiple bruises on Molly's body identified in the autopsy. Yes, Megan and I have a copy of the autopsy. We will go over it. Um, it's apparent to experts that have viewed the blood evidence in the crime scene photos that Molly's body was moved within minutes of the gunshot. The blood streaks from her nose indicated indicate that her head was hanging upside down shortly after being shot. So approximately 4 a.m. to 4.45, Molly is shot with Minton's gun execution style in the top of her head on the left side at a downward angle backwards with no exit wound she was right-handed a police memo states that minton must have been standing on the bed all right so if he was is a suspect and he is suspected of being the one to administer this gunshot wound it is very much possible if he had been standing on the bed that
1: was one investigator yep. one law enforcement officer's opinion
0: making a memo mm-hmm.
1: and he placed that in writing he mm-hmm. made some type of a, a uh, what would you call a field note yes a memo a field note yeah. yep
0: exactly at four forty a.m a very suspicious suspicious text was sent from molly's phone to the suspect's roommate Wes. it stated quote he was texting Chloe saying he needed her and asking her to sleep with him. I think I'm going to shoot myself in the head. I'm really, really sorry if you come home to that, end quote.
1: And that was her suicide note.
0: That was her suicide note. Conveniently to Wes. I was kidding. Like su- this.
1: Oh my God. Wes
0: is not home at this time. Wes is at work.
1: So Wes is one of these guys who has to get up and leave at like 4 or 5 a.m. for work? No. No.
0: Um, he comes. He's home. Third shift. Third shift. Oh. He comes home from work. Okay, and, and we will get to when he comes home. Okay, but four forty a.m. This text message goes from Molly's phone to Wes's phone that says that. May I inquire then
1: that message wasn't deleted off of her phone.
0: This was on Wes's phone and he cooperates with the investigation. Okay. So the messages
1: from her phone still were all deleted, but this was one that was sent to Wes. To
0: Wes and he didn't delete his messages. Thank
1: you. So I don't want to mess up uh, evidence and that would have been important if that was the only thing on her phone. But we know hers has been wiped or deleted. Correct. This is something she sent. Yep. I'm making air quotes.
0: Yep. To Wes. This is what was from Molly's phone to Wes's phone at four forty a.m. In, in, and it said, I'm going to read it for you again. Quote, he was texting Chloe saying he needed her and asking her to sleep with him. I think I'm going to shoot myself in the head. I'm really, really sorry if you come home to that. End quote. In the recorded interview with police of that they do with Chloe, she denies having a conversation about sleeping with Minton. Also, in two separate recorded interviews of Mr. Minton's roommate, Wes, he denies that's what the text from Molly stated and that the suspect told his roommate that he doesn't remember sending Chloe texts about sleeping with him. So now Wes, in his interview with the police, says, no, that's not what the text message said. But they were able to retrieve it and see that that's exactly what the text message said. Mm. And says, I don't remember Uh, at all sending Chloe texts about sleeping with him or about seeing texts like that. 5.30 a.m. This is when Wes, the roommate, told police he arrived home from work and that he saw Molly's purse and shoes on the floor.
1: Probably not atypical. He probably walked in and went, well, that's weird. Guess they made up.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He said that he peeked into... Mr. Minton's room, but quote, "didn't see where Molly's bod- body would have been lying if she had been deceased yet." End quote. Oh, that's a weird statement to make. Then Wes stated that he went to the bathroom, and it gets more weird. He said that he went through Mr. Minton's phone to see how his night went. <laughs> Cuz he said he wasn't about to wake them up.
1: So Minton's phone is in the bathroom, like he's left it there.
0: Well, um, I don't know where he left his phone, but he's clearly saying he had access to it and that he went through Richie Minton's phone.
1: To see how his night was To see
0: how his night was instead of just, I don't know, waiting until the dude woke up the next day and asking him.
1: give me your phone. I want to look at your private pictures that you sent to see how your week's gone. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) You're in for a real treat. I
1: figured. Yeah, Yeah, not to make light of it. That's weird.
0: Right. Exactly. So at 5:47 a.m. a text from Wes to Molly is on um her on her phone that says he's asleep now. I just got home. So all of a sudden he's texting Molly At 5.47 a.m. But you saw... You told the police that you saw her shoes and purse. Why are you sending her a text that says, he's asleep now, I just got home.
1: Did, uh, Did he really know those were her shoes and purse or did he just know they belonged to a female?
0: But he peeks in... And he And says, doesn't see her body. Right.
1: But we know she died about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour Anywhere
0: before. Anywhere between 4 <coughs> a.m. and...
1: F- 4.40? And
0: 5.45. Oh, and he really, got home at 5.30. I think that the coroner... Doesn't the coroner's report say
1: 4.45? They are all listing in these. The... Um, time of death as 9.50 a.m. because that's when they okay. responded and called it. Okay. I, as we go through this a little bit more, um, perhaps there's some uh, time frames in there. As when they, they speculated it may have occurred.
0: Okay. Well, the time frame that um, the police gave in their file that is how Larry came about this this time frame, they are speculating it between 4 a.m. and 5.45 a.m. Okay. so here we are at 547 and Wes sends Molly's phone a text that says he's asleep now. I just got home. And this is after he had already went through his phone, supposedly. But we're going to get more. I want you to think about all of this stuff. I, I need you to remember the information that Wes had his phone. It was it was within somehow, according to his statement, he had it in his possession and went through it to see how his night was. So at 7 a.m., the suspect, Mr. Minton, was supposed to report for work as as a Carbondale police dispatcher, but didn't show up. According to the Carbondale police chief, O'Gwen, no wellness check was done because Mr. Minton made contact with the department and reported that he would be late for work. Okay. Prior to
1: the 911 call?
0: Prior to the 911 call. That was a statement made by the police chief, okay? That, yeah, we didn't go see where he was or anything because we knew he was okay, he just was going to be late. So it's 7 o'clock and he reported that he was late for, for work. This is where I'm going to tell you that years later, Larry is able to obtain the police radio communication for the Carbondale police the night of the 23rd and the morning of the 24th. There, Larry was able to attain that? He was. There was chatter on the frequency all night, as you know. Right, police. Oh yes. Chatter. Except at between seven and seven thirty a.m., there was radio silence, Megan. There was no chatter. Larry suspects that they went on a private line. And then again, between eight forty-five and nine fifteen a.m., there is no chatter whatsoever. There'd been chatter Constant. every couple of minutes, as we always, you know, hear. Yep. Or a busy police department.
1: Yeah. And sometimes that's even stuff like this badge number 50 checking out. Yes. um, Badge 74 in service. Uh, I'm going to go on to this call. Hey, I'm running. They're supposed to report where they are all the time, right? They are. They even say things like personal business. Basically, I'm running my home to grab my lunch, I'll be right back out yep. so that you know where they are at all times. Yes. And I have two different instances here where we have thirty minute time frames of radio silence.
0: Correct. Seven between seven AM and seven thirty when he was supposed to be at work.
1: All the hair just stood up on my neck.
0: Also, this would be when shift change happens. So you should hear a lot of people radioing coming into in service, coming out of service. Yep. And then again between eight forty five and nine fifteen, which is right before and then right after the nine one one calls. God, was anybody ever, um, did
1: they make an inquiry into that? Like, let's call the the police department and just say, hey, can you explain what happened here? I mean, obviously you can't explain what happened on a private line. We understand that. I understand that because mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. a civilian, so I know how it works. And I wouldn't be rude about it. But can you explain why we went radio silenced for two 30-minute time frames?
0: Right. I am I'm unsure of the answers to that. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll hear more in just a sec. But at 8, 10 a.m., Carbondale Police Department dispatcher by the name of Pellegrini called Sergeant Gessler and inquired if Minton had called in sick. No one reported that he had called in. But remember, the police chief said, gave a statement that said that he had made contact with them at 7 a.m. that he was going to be late. So he made contact at 7 a.m., but at 8.10, the dispatcher's like, hey, where the heck is Minton? No right. one's told me that he's going to be late. So the
1: dispatch didn't know, but law enforcement did. But
0: all but the police chief did.
1: And he doesn't work for the police chief. He works for dispatch. Correct. Who
0: works for the police chief? Well, maybe the detective that he specifically asks for in a minute. Oh. Between 8, 10, and 9 a.m., several texts and phones were sent to Mr. Minton's phone from the dispatcher on duty at the Carbondale Police Department. From her personal cell phone to find out why he was late for work.
1: And this is prior to him making the 911
0: call. Sure is. This is between, from her personal cell phone. Sure. This Which is normal,
1: not to mm-hmm. not to be rude to you, because if my coworker hadn't showed up, I would be texting them on my personal phone like, Hey, asshole, I'm here answering calls. Where are you? Yep. Also, are you okay?
0: Right, 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 right. Exactly. Get your ass to work. The exact times of this communication could not be obtained from cell phones because the dispatcher and Mr. Minton have both deleted their text messages. So we don't know what they said, but we know that they happened. Why would
1: the dispatcher delete hers?
0: I don't know, honey. That's a question for her. Between 9.02 a.m. and 9.04, the 911 call went to the Jackson County Sheriff and was made by Wes Romack on Romack's phone because allegedly— Minton's phone was lost. Well, Wes had it. Mm, Hold on. But (laughs) wouldn't Wes be like, I know where your phone is. I went through it last night. One
1: would think. How about your phone? You left it in the bathroom and I used it as my reading material.
0: Also, hey, you can't make the 911 call from your phone because your phone is lost. But what about all these text messages between 8, 10 a.m. and 9 a.m. to the dispatcher that's on duty? You had your phone then. What about the contact that you made at seven a.m. to the police chief that you were going to be late for work? You had your phone then, but now all of a sudden, when it's time to call nine one one, phone is lost. While well, on the the call, the suspect took the phone from Wes. Wes's phone from him, and that's when you can hear that second person. Yeah, I can picture him. it now.
1: He's got his hand out because you hear Wes say, "Here you go," and 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 then Correct. we hear the uh, the well, second he, voice. It's like
0: he didn't know his own address. Uh, Mr. Minton gets on the phone on the 911 call, takes it from Wes when they were asking the address and he was blubbing it. He couldn't remember his own address. And you hear him say on that 911 call, as we all heard, that Molly just committed suicide by overdose and was covered in blood.
1: Right. Just. I believe he he said first, she's got blood coming out of her nose, she's OD'd, Mm -hmm. and then he says she committed suicide after he talks identifies Amber.
0: And then Wes, in the beginning, says there's a person in our apartment that we believe might be dead.
1: Right. That's the first thing he said, having Mm -hmm. the person who he knows and has had communication with. It is bizarre. You know that in the line of work that I'm in, I've heard thousands... Of 911 calls and people often react differently. Sure. You could have someone act very calmly when you think they should be hysterical. Mm-hmm. Someone acting hysterical when you think they might be overdoing it just a bit. People react weird. Yeah. But giving general information like there is a person who, it rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You, The first thing you do is identify the right. person. Right. Mm-hmm. Molly is here. She is my friend. She is my uh, roommate's, roommate's girlfriend whatever. and she's dead on the floor. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I have, I have some feels.
0: Yes. It's, I think that it probably rubbed most listeners the wrong way when they listened to that as it did Larry. When sure. he finally got to hear it. Because for the I'm first assuming
1: time. Larry probably knew the roommate. Maybe he knew, did he know Wes?
0: I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. I really don't know. I don't think they had a personal relationship. Of course not. For sure. But, but mm-hmm. you usually
1: know where your daughter's significant other lives.
0: We also know from records that at 9.04 a.m., the Carbondale Police Dispatcher Pellegrini called the briefing room and notified Sergeant Shiplet of the 911 call and that she did not have a day shift lineup yet. So it was determined that Officer Mooney would handle it because they haven't like put their got their stuff together again, I guess, for the day. It's shift change. Yep. So at 9.05 a.m., according to Cell T- Tower Pings, a text was filed sent from Mr. Minton's phone, now this is 905, remember, this is when he should, he's on the phone with 911. And he sent with his phone that's supposedly lost a text message to the dispatcher on duty at 905. Now, the exact message could not be determined because all pertinent text on the suspect's phone and the on-duty dispatcher's phone had been deleted, as I said. But it showed on subpoena phone record documents that the two numbers had had Contact. Text. Mm-hmm. The text was at the same time that he was allegedly attempting CPR. Okay. Did he attempt CPR? There is no evidence that CPR was ever performed on her body.
1: And he had already indicated that she was deceased.
0: Right. She's dead. She's right. OD'd. Yep. But then later talks about how he, he was did CPR. administering CPR. Mm-hmm. There is no blood on Mister Minton's phone, even though there was a large blood transfer stain on the left sho- shoulder of Molly's hoodie, which likely was from um, the suspect's um, right shooting hand when he moved her. Okay, if he was to be to be moved, there's there is a hand stain, blood hand stain, um, a handprint. Yep, on uh, in blood on Molly's hoodie okay. that
1: can be identified as his handprint.
0: Well, it says. Or
1: just the shooter's handprint. The
0: sh- which was likely from the right hand of the shooter when the person moved her. So
1: let me get this straight. They are not indicating that Molly's own right hand, which she allegedly used to shoot herself in the left top side of the head, mm-hmm. then after she was deceased, made its way back down to yes. leave a handprint on her hoodie. Correct. Just wanted to mm-hmm. verify.
0: At 9.06 a.m., the dispatcher on duty answered the suspect's text, and it said, quote, OMG, I'm so sorry about your girlfriend, Molly, end quote. Okay, again, this reiterates, isn't his phone lost? Where? Wait a second. His phone isn't lost. No. And then 9.10, this is when Mr. Minton called the on-duty dispatcher on the non-emergency phone line from his cell from, phone and reported Molly's death as a gunshot wound and not a drug overdose as he had um right he discovered that discovered eight minutes after like, the first call. Yes. But yep. during the eight because minutes Because he found her gun under or his gun under her body i also want to point out to you when we're talking about guns larry is insistent that his daughter had no knowledge of guns she did not like guns she did not use guns as a hobby anything like that
1: yeah that's important because to the best of my recollection he didn't recall her having ever having shot one like never never shot a gun
0: to his knowledge ever his daughter had never he she didn't like them no Something and he sent us, Megan, this the photo of the room. Okay, something that was said during the course of the investigation is that the reason there was an explanation given for why he originally thought it was a drug overdose and then realized that she had a gunshot wound in her in her head. And without giving you too many gruesome details for Molly's sake, guys, her skull was severely damaged from this point blank gunshot wound. Okay. It wasn't a small wound and it distorted her face. Okay. All right. So we can, And
1: we know also that this is not a survivable injury. Correct. Where one could um, react or have moments or be revivable. Yes.
0: Yes. Again, like so, the ability
1: to control your hand, to leave a print on your, on your own, own person.
0: Yep. And so... His explanation of why he misunderstood the situation is because he claimed that the lighting was poor in his room. But we have the crime scene photos, Megan, They're and we can see bright. that there, the, there is a light in the middle of that room like there is in most bedrooms, bright as can be. Not dull, not dim. It's not only lit by lamplight. There is a working light in the center of the ceiling of that room that casts light over the entire room
1: as a light does. does
0: yep so then the mr minton requested the um sergeant a specific sergeant to come sergeant shiplet to be sent to his house his he mean he
1: requested the sergeant he did he requested a certain police a officer. certain
0: police officer and again apologized f- for being late to work as if that matters right now we know at 9 11 so this is right after the second um phone call to dispatch at 9 and 9 12 he called his mom twice
1: i actually find that less bizarre
0: oh yeah yeah i agree nine then calling
1: and requesting a specific officer to come to investigate yes. i would call my mommy
0: uh-huh. that i think uh, agreed very okay, appropriate. good i'm glad Nine thirteen. the paramedics were and first responders arrived at the scene they immediately notified dispatch that it was a gunshot wound to the head instead of the overdose that was that was originally they thought they were responding to. They stated that it was apparent that um, Molly was deceased and noticed that the body had been moved. It was cold to the touch and trigger alert brain matter was extremely exposed. The paramedics did not disturb the body in order to allow a crime scene expert to come and take photos. They recognized right away. That this needs photos. This
1: This is not a, again, this is not a situation where you come in and begin life-saving measures or start doing any type of uh, resuscitation because we have an obvious. It's so obvious. Right. So instead, they preserve, they try, attempt to preserve the crime scene that they have walked in on.
0: Correct. And that's important, Megan, because of the statements made by the suspect here of, I thought it was a drug overdose. Oh, wait, eight minutes later, I discover... Because my gun is under her body, now I think she's shot herself. So it wasn't the fact that
1: and her brain is exposed. and her brain is
0: exposed, that I think it's a gunshot. It's because I found, and we heard it right there on that 911 call. It's because I found my gun under her. That's how I discovered that she shot herself. I have problems with this. So I'm you know the paramedics did, they did not disturb her body. They made statements to the police that said they did not smell any odor of alcohol. On Mr. Minton at all, okay. And the reason that's important is because of the explanation given that he didn't wake up to the gunshot when Molly shot herself. He didn't wake up because he was so passed out from being so drunk the night before.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: In addition, and the- Molly
1: might have thought he was drunk too, since she sent a message when she went over there saying that she was going to take care of take care of him or to right. help him. I'm she sorry was, she, that made that made it sound terrible. She was going to help him.
0: Help him. Yep, she went over there under the premise of I'm going to help him. Possibly because he was too drunk. But remember the friends that dropped him off said he was not not vomiting. He was not annihilated. And so, no. So if you've got those statements of he's he's not annihilated, he's not um, overly intoxicated. And then you have him saying I was so intoxicated that I couldn't wake up when a gunshot was going off and there's experts in this case that will testify to how um, implausible that is yeah okay we're
1: gonna get to this hopefully about what it would sound like and how loud it would be
0: would be extremely loud and there's scientific ways to show a jury should it ever come to that and hopefully it does of how that wouldn't be possible Okay, right next to you, laying in bed right next to you and not waking up. I just think that it was. it's important to note that the, um, the other thing is is that he's supposed to be at work at 7 a.m. and he's not somebody who typically misses work because he partied too hard or anything like he's that. He's going to go
1: to work hungover. Yeah,
0: right? So um, that seems out of character that he would have been so annihilated that he couldn't get up for work the next day and slept right through all of this. But the first responders even say uh, he didn't have any alcohol no signs time. of outward intoxication. Mm-mm. Yep, exactly. Had he showered? We're gonna get to some things on that. The paramedics reported that um, th- they actually like wrote down the mechanism of injury was um, assault firearms. That's what they documented. Yeah, assault firearms. Mm-hmm. Interesting. At they nine- did not
1: document suicide no. or self harm. No. no, they did document assault firearms. Assault slash or by firearm nope,
0: just assault firearms okay yeah at 9 48 a.m uh sergeant shiplet was the first police officer to arrive because remember the first responders got there but now sergeant shiplet is the first officer to arrive this is the same officer that was requested by mr minton himself uh officer or sergeant shiplet allowed mr minton to pick up a pair of shorts that had vomit stains on them from the kitchen floor, and go into the bathroom and change his clothing. He even retrieved a shirt for him to change into.
1: Why were there vomit-stained shorts on the kitchen floor?
0: No idea. Whose shorts were they? There's never an explanation. His. They were Mr. Minton's. What was he wearing when they got there? He was wearing um, a pair of pajama pants that had blood splatter on it. Mr. Minton's clothes are the only ones that had blood splatter on them. But he was allowed to change. He was allowed to go into the privacy of his own bathroom, do whatever he wanted. He later admits that he does wash his hands. He's before any resid- gunshot residue, anything is taken and it's hours later and I'll repeat it when I get there in the story, but he admits that he washed his hands.
1: And then he changed out of the clothes that had the blood spatter. He changed out of his And clothing. brain matter most likely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do we know if those were bagged and taken into evidence? I do not know. All right.
0: At nine fifteen, um, Carbondale Police Officer Rebecca Mooney arrives. She was the one that was assigned for by the morning duty. Remember the the um, work assignments weren't yet for the day. Yep. And- so they're like, we're just going to put Mooney on it. And she sees that Mr. Minton is entering the bathroom to change his clothes. This is only she only arrived fifty five seconds after the first responding officer arrived. So they um, made that decision within one minute, minute of yeah. him arriving. At nine twenty-two, Mr. Minton calls his mom again. At nine twenty-three, him, Mr. Minton and his roommate are transported together by the Carbondale police officer um, Murray uh, for voluntary statements. They're gonna take them down to the department for voluntary statements. Between nine twenty-two and nine thirty-six a.m., fifty-nine crime scene photos in one video of the parking lot um, of the remember this is all happening in an apartment building. Yes, uh, were taken by the Carbondale Police Department. And this is where I'm going to tell you that years later, Larry got into contact with a very expensive and prominent crime scene um, staging expert. Her name is Laura Petler, who looked at these photos, these 59 photos and this video and reported based on her expertise. And she is an expert in this field. She has a PhD in it. This is what she does. She looks at crime scene staging. Yes, yes. Uh, She is $30,000 to retain as an expert witness, though, and she ran through this crime scene, and based on her expertise, she told Larry very matter-of-factly that this crime scene was 100% staged based on those 59 photos. That was her expert opinion. It was her expert opinion, yep. She has a PhD in public safety, specializing in criminal justice, where she focuses on forensic criminology and specifically the study of intimate partner violence and crime scene staging. So- um, She ever generate a report? Or was, yes. Okay. But, I, yes. However, in order to have her come and do a full workup of it- Based on her expertise, absolutely, and, and testimony. Testimony. She's yeah. Thirty thousand dollars. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: and before anybody gets judgy about it, that's that's how it works. It is. It's it's, it's and, an
0: exchange, right?
1: Yeah. And you can't just take um, her opinion that's in writing and admit it as evidence, y'all, because those exhibits can't be admitted without the person who produced Correct. them.
0: Right. That's why as a CPS worker, I couldn't just write my report. i have, have to go it. to court and testify about what was in my report.
1: Yes, because the defendant, whoever he or she may be, has the right to confront their accusers yes. in open court and have questions asked of them.
0: Have the cross-examination. Absolutely. It's, yep, yep. At 9.26 a.m., the suspect called his mom twice while being transported to the Carbondale Police Department. 9.28 a.m., the Carbondale police officer arrived at the station with Mr. Um, Romack, the roommate, and Mr. Minton for their interviews.
1: Wes is Romack. West right? Romack. Yep. I tend to call people by their first. Name, I know.
0: So. Nine thirty. I try, I try to too. It's just I'm trying I just to want to keep it be. straight. Mm-hmm. At nine thirty a.m., Mr. Minton refused to complete a voluntary statement, likely being advised by his lawyer because his at attorney is with him. Sure. Um, he refused to be interviewed or sign consent to search. However, Mr. Romack signed the consent to search for the apartment. Remember, he lives in that apartment, too. Yeah, Wes
1: can give consent.
0: And he did. And he completed a voluntary statement form. This is where Larry's upset. Wes gave consent. They did not go and search that apartment. After consent was given? Correct. Did they get a search warrant? Seven hours later. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. But they had it at 9.30. They had consent at 9.30 a.m., Megan. 9.32 9:32 a.m., the suspect called his dad and asked him to contact their family lawyer.
1: Uh, the- they can secure the, I'm sorry to interrupt, they can secure the crime scene though. Did they secure the crime scene? Or were they allowed to Mr. Mitten and Wes allowed just to go back to their apartment where there's all this evidence and not have the police there holding on to it?
0: Are you reading my notes the next the uh, next No, thing I'm is, feeling it in my soul. Nine thirty nine thirty five AM, the door to Mr. Mitten's apartment was shut and a crime scene log sign in sheet was started all right. by the police station at the door that no one was allowed to enter the scene. That's nine thirty five. At 9.40 and 9.42, Richie Minton's dad called him twice and told him that the lawyer said not to do anything, right? The lawyer is advising. That's that's normal legal advice, everybody. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. 9.44 a.m., Mr. Minton calls the on-duty seat, uh, Carbondale Police Department dispatcher from his personal cell phone. The lost one. Yep. To her personal cell phone and asks her to, quote, have an officer go there, meaning to his apartment, Get Molly's phone for him. She contacted the officer at the crime scene, but the officer informed her that she, the officer at the crime scene, quote, didn't want to move it or anything until crime scene people get there and take pictures. Good End for quote. you, ma'am. Mm-hmm. 9.44 a.m., Chief Ogu- uh, Oguin instructed Lieutenant Reno, at the scene to call the Illinois State Police and request them to take over the investigation.
1: Well, probably a good idea considering you have an employee of a department who does work for dispatch instead of as an investigator, Mm -hmm. potential, I live with conflicts of interest. Yeah, absolutely. We have to recuse ourselves, remove ourselves and ask for appropriate stand-ins in these situations. And so this does happen in this case, but not for hours.
0: Yes, Yes, not until nearly 10 a.m. And uh, at this point in time, the Carbondale police have already been all over this crime scene, have already had much contact with Mr. Minton. Mr. Right?
1: Minton's already been allowed to change his clothes, wash his hands. And
0: and remember, he had to access the- to Molly, even though Molly's phone is still in that apartment, he had access to it between the time of her death and the time the first police officer arrived. Let's not forget about that. According to, the, to uh, the chief's incident report, he reported that the Carvondale lieutenant called in four Carvindale police crime scene investigators first to assist with the Illinois State Police with the investigation. And then he called the Illinois State Police. So he had his four Carvondale police uh, crime scene investigators picked before he called the Illinois State Police to come and assist in the investigation, all right? So there's already people working the scene from Carbondale Police Department to share information with the Illinois State Police. At 9.50 a.m., the deputy coroner arrived at the crime scene, and according to his report, he was refused admission by the Carbondale Police Department because it was considered a crime scene. The deputy deputy coroner then called the coroner who arrived a short time later, and after waiting seven hours until search warrants were signed, he wasn't allowed to make an exam of Molly's deceased body at the scene. Okay, seven hours. In the meantime, at 10.16 a.m., the Illinois State Police blood expert notified his office that, quote, when questioned, Mr. Minton suspiciously lawyered up and the incident is being investigated as a homicide.
1: I don't think him lawyering up is suspicious. I don't either. I don't.
0: And I'm glad I knew you would point that out. I was gonna point it out if you didn't. I like to point Guys, out the
1: unpopular things that I, you don't like here because okay, but people I would have lawyer rights. up too. Even yes. if I had
0: nothing to do with this. If I was Wes, the roommate that possibly had nothing to do with anything. i lawyer, lawyered up enough. too. Yeah. Yes. It's all of our rights to do that. And if any of our listeners find themselves in a precarious situation, retain a lawyer. Oh, I, Just do it.
1: Yeah. That's not my problem with, with no, any of this so no. far. At
0: 1022, the crime scene was turned over by the Carbondale police, Sergeant Shiplet to Carbondale police, Lieutenant Reno. So at 1022, he's like, okay, I've done my, my part here. Here you go, Lieutenant.
1: But they still haven't turned it over to the other agency.
0: That turns over at 10.33 a.m. And the Illinois State Police show up and take control of the crime scene. All right. No one was allowed to enter the scene until after 4.15 when search warrants were obtained due to the, subs- the suspect refusing to give consent to search his apartment, although at 9.30 a.m. they already had consent by the roommate.
1: Yeah, that's that's parts frustrating but mm-hmm. I do know you can have consent and when there's two parties that live there if only one party's getting consent giving consent the police do get nervous about that sometimes and in terms of length of time I mean let's just talk about what it's like to be real and have li- a life um, they may have taken that long legitimately to get search warrants timed to find a prosecutor to sign a search warrant mm-hmm. uh, if that's a requirement in that state and then to find a judge Or a magistrate to review it and sign it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. No, I Also, search warrants don't just appear. No. Someone has to to type them. Yes. And they have to be typed because everything has to be within the four corners of the document. Yeah. So if you come in to get a search warrant signed by a judge and all of the information is in there, if I have to start asking you extra questions, I'm not signing your search warrant. Right. You have to have all the info. So it does take time to prepare. And then... It's based off of probable cause, right? To be able to to sign.
0: I will never forget the first petition for child removal that I had to do, and I was shocked when I was like, "Oh wait, we're in this emergency situation, but you really want me to sit down at my computer right now and type up a timeline and all the information? I can't just go tell the judge exactly why we need this is imminent risk. What I have to type this up." Yes. I was shooketh. And then the whole time I was shaking when I was doing it, feeling the sense of urgency of every minute counts. You've got to get it. you know clear and concise of why there is imminent risk for these children what a
1: great comparison because the petition for emergency removal of children is almost exactly comparable to a search warrant yeah in terms of burdens of proof and everything just like your petition to take jurisdiction or your petition that is going to be comparable to a police report
0: yeah Yeah, so exactly. It takes it takes a person. It takes them sitting down and putting the information together in an organized, clear and concise fashion from your brain to the computer to make it to be be signable.
1: And the reason for my insert of opinion, y'all, on this is simply because seven hours sounds like a long time. Mm-hmm. and it was frustrating to me to hear as well because we know what's there and we know what's at the scene and mm-hmm. we know what's happening, but in the grand scheme of things, I've seen worse. Sure, certainly, and,
0: and, that, and that judge, right, right. And that judge isn't just going to sign it because this particular officer is like, no, trust me, you're going to want us to go through this stuff, right? No, no, they have to have all the facts. You take they all they have the time to, to it. read it. Yep. yep, and it also takes time to get that evidence as well. Interviews. Putting the dots together, right? So, it just just really good information for people to remember. At 11:03 a.m., um, the Lieutenant Reno did arrive back at the Carbondale Police De- Department and requested that Mr. Minton and his roommate be brought into interview rooms. All right. So at this point in time, now it's 11 o'clock, and they're like, "We, we need to interview you now." Mr. Minton refuses to be interviewed and asserts his Fifth Amendment rights, but M- Wes agrees. The roommate agrees. Um, at eleven eighteen, when they could clearly tell that Mr. Minton's not cooperating and he refused to submit to a gunshot residue test, test. now Mr. Romack, Wes, he did agree to that. And um, he did have the residue test done, but he admitted that he also washed his hands since he left the residence. So, I mean, because now it's been a couple hours. Yep. They've been sitting at the police station- couple hours so he's like yeah you can do you can take a residue test but I have washed my hands
1: I love how when there's a crime scene people all of a sudden become conscious of germs and want to wash their hands (laughs) right on a regular basis how often do they leave their bathroom after they shake it without washing right no offense guys but yeah we
0: know what happens oh my god at a basketball tournament yesterday I watched three women walk out of the bathroom stall without Without washing washing their their hands hands. I I silently judge also So um, this is why I open everything using the cuff of my sleeve.
1: I get, exactly. I'm doing it right now. It's the cloth it from is, inside yes. your sleeve where you open the doorknob. Yep, exactly. that's me too.
0: It appra- because what do I say? Every doorknob is a penis. <laughs> okay? There is there is penis on those doorknobs. I'm sorry, guys. A
1: friend of of ours and one of your former coworkers, who might be a supervisor, um, is used to say, "If it's wet and it's sticky and it's not yours, don't, don't touch it.
0: it." So true. It's still good advice every day. Uh, so at approximately 11:30 a.m., the Jackson County, uh, State's Attorney was requested to meet with the State Police, and the State's Attorney agreed to meet with them at the Carbondale Police Department. So this is going to shake you up a little bit, I think, Meg. Okay. At 11.54 a.m., Wes Romack agreed to voluntarily turn over his clothing as evidence.
1: Oh, the roommate. Yep.
0: Yep. While removing his shirt, an uh, Illinois State Police officer noticed two scratches between his shoulder blades. When the officer asked where he got them, the roommate stated, Wes stated, that he must have got the scratches while at work and that he has a very physical job. His job is that he works at Panera bread baking bread on the night shift
1: what 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 hold on
0: those baguettes man my well, daughter's yeah. that my oldest daughter's a baker
1: by Correct. profession
0: yeah. Can she you is, ask her if she's ever gotten. I can scratches? tell you
1: now that I've seen her work injuries. She has got burns. Yeah. She's got all you know her arms, whatever. I don't believe she has ever shown me a scratch or a burn or an injury in between her shoulder blades. Yep. Mostly, I think it's because she keeps her clothes on at work. Maybe that was the. Maybe Panera Bread has a different policy for baking bread.
0: Maybe the night shift gets a little crazy. I mean, you have gotta, you ever
1: worked a night shift job?
0: I actually haven't. Thank God.
1: Yeah, bacon naked at Panera.
0: <laughs> baking. Bacon, naked. naked at Panera. Okay, apparently that's a thing that they do, and it can sometimes that bread. And I will argue, Panera's yeah, bread is scratchy.
1: They, they have a nice hard outer coating. They I are
0: hard. Uh huh. I don't know how much they attack. But but I've
1: never I've, been attacked by a loaf of bread no. other than in the stomach region, <laughs>
0: carb wise. I feel very attacked inside <laughs> yes. by bread.
1: But I love it. I keep eating it. Um, okay.
0: Yeah. So Wes
1: has some injuries. Wes has as some, he's turning over his clothes.
0: Yes, exactly. When the when the roommate the roommate has scratch. Okay. Yep, he has two let's see. Yep, two scratches between his shoulder blades. And we could start a whole series when Begats fight back, you know? <laughs> right. At ten or excuse me, at one ten PM. Mr. Minton, through the advice of his attorney, was now willing to give consent to a gunshot residue test of his hands as evidence. He's washed his hands twice. He did say, but he admitted to washing his hands since the incident occurred. Mm Hmm. Good golly. He even was able to go to the bathroom at the police station and wash his hands there while he was at the police station. So, I mean, this
1: is not any judgment on my part. But why would we not have collected physical evidence before we allowed people to leave the interview room?
0: I don't know, Meg. <sighs> At approximately one thirty p.m., the suspect agreed to submit his clothing as evidence. So Mr. Mitten is now submitting his clothing as evidence. But stating stated that the clothing that he has on, a pair of shorts stained with vomit, a plaid shirt, and Nike shoes, isn't the clothing that he was wearing when the incident took place. He stated he was wearing pajamas and a pair of Chuck Taylor Converse shoes at the time of the incident. You were wearing shoes to bed? You, you were wearing,
1: wearing, wearing pajama pants? You and changed shoes? into shorts with vomit on them as a better alternative to the clothes you were wearing with blood spatter on them. How is yes. any of this making sense? You didn't change into clean clothes. No. Nope. How? How? We're just left with. Eh? <gasps> right, as our friend does when he testifies and he doesn't know how to answer <laughs> arms up uh, yeah this should be a video episode it know. wasn't a pretty face we just made no. but it was an honest one and
0: also it did happen on the stand it did it's it did has,
1: I, I i was the prosecutor that did in that case once.
0: um <sighs> okay uh-huh. so he admits yep. that here's
1: the like, vomit sure, shorts and everything clothes, but, but it's not, what I, not wearing. what
0: I was not what i so at 1:32 p.m. after Mr. Minton removed his shirt, 3 officers observed that he had two scratches on the right side of his back. Pictures were taken of these fresh scratches. They were 6 inches in length.
1: Maybe Wes and Minton were scratching each other's backs.
0: Oh, and they just didn't want to tell the world. Instead, it was the baguettes. And do you want to know his Minton's explanation? Yes. When, the, when Mr. Minton was asked where the scratches came from, he stated in a low voice that he must have gotten them when he was doing CPR on Molly. There is no evidence in the crime scene photos or autopsy that CPR was ever attempted. Also, how many victims have you ever seen, Megan, that have such a significant gunshot wound to the head that you administer CPR on um, that can scratch you. Okay. You can't. Oh, okay.
1: Now, I am not a scientific expert. True. Me neither. uh, But I've heard enough, right? Again, not my first day. I've been doing this a while. You mean being human and putting pieces of puzzles together? Well, that's assuming everybody has common sense, which clearly (laughs) is not the case. Um, The last time I checked, a, a dead body... Not to be disrespectful to Molly, but somebody who is deceased is no longer able to use enough force to leave a scratch mark that would have broken skin.
0: Correct, six inch scratch mark, and get that person's skin under their nails again,
1: requiring force. Because if if my hand is laying here limp, right, my arm is like this; it's limp, it's fallen asleep. Okay, it's damn near the stranger at this point. Yes. And you take my arm and try to move me and my fingers or even my relatively long fingernails
0: graze against your skin. They are not going to cause you any harm. They're not. No. Yeah. So that's where we're at with that. There's that nugget of information. Let it simmer inside your soul as it will. It's starting to bubble up. <laughs> I know. At 318. What does my face look like right now? I, um, is the RBF, is it there? Your, Do I have frown lines? Your forced smile yeah. is like... I have pretty gotta teeth. Got to work on it. <laughs> Thank you. At 3.18 18 p.m., two Carbondale police officers interviewed uh, Wes about Mr. Minton contemplating suicide in the previous weeks because he had made a statement, remember? He had, had stated that, yeah, I was worried about him. He was, you know, they they were worried about that. They wanted some more information. So Wes Romack told them about two incidences that Mr. Minton had to be talked down from suicide. Minton told um, Wes in a text that, quote, the only way he could get rid of Molly was to kill himself, end quote. Because of this, the Carbondale Police Lieutenant Reno requested the Illinois State Police have Mr. Minton evaluated by medical staff at the Carbondale Memorial Hospital. That's normal. Yeah. yeah, Yep. I think that that is um, appropriate and their job.
1: It is because if you have this known information and it comes up later, if he would have been charged, if this would have gone to trial and somebody said, um, I'm not guilty by reason of insanity or that they weren't mentally calm competent to comprehend the situation you would want to know their mental state so this is that's good exactly I'm a little bit concerned can I just put this out here and again not everybody knows they can do this but Wesley I mean sweetie if you're still out there someplace um, when your friend is actively suicidal or or indicates that they might cause harm to themselves or someone else, Mm -hmm. uh, you can and should file an involuntary mental petition or turn that over to somebody who knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I did this recently on a case where I gave that as a PSA. It's another PSA. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. It's a good reminder for people. At 3.52 p.m., excuse me, 3.52 p.m., an affidavit of probable cause was submitted and four search warrants were issued for Minton's Car, apartment, cell phone, DNA, blood, urine, and fingernail clippings. Okay? okay. So that's at 3.52. At 7.10 is when they took a blood alcohol content, okay, blood work, DNA, were taken from him. So it was- 12 it, hours past the time. Well, it was, 13, no, four, I mean 14, it was four, hours. It was 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Did I say a.m.? No, you said PM, but okay. you said it wasn't until
1: seven PM that they actually took the DNA, and I was going from the time of the alleged death.
0: Oh, you're right. Yes, thank you. I mean, you. a
1: whole day has passed. A
0: whole day, essentially, damn near. And yep. if you understand
1: toxicology, I mean, it's only going to pick up the um, alcohol or substances that are in your body at the time. Um, knowing that you may have test positive for alcohol from drinking the night before, but it's not going to give you an accurate like level. Yes. Like, it's not going to say no. at 4 a.m. he would have been a point two zero. Yes, exactly. It's just going to tell you what he is right now, and you will have Correct. known that he would have been drinking.
0: Correct. So, that was 7, 10 p.m. It took all those hours before DNA was taken from him, blood alcohol was taken from him. So, yeah, no drugs or alcohol showed up in his system as I'm sure that does not come as a surprise to anybody at that point in time. Even if was- there would
1: have been prior, it is not nope. shocking to me that there's no longer any now. And honestly, I don't care if there was.
0: No, I know. Does,
1: right. that, does that make me a bad person? He's he's legally allowed to go out and party. Right. He allegedly got drunk the night before. We don't know what his mindset was. If, and this is a big if, because I know that there's not been any convictions. If he was intoxicated, voluntary intoxication is not a defense to committing a crime, right? period, anywhere in the United States, and I, anywhere. And
0: I think where it is important, you know, for the family is just his explanation of she committed suicide and I didn't hear it because I was so inebriated that I was passed out and, and did not wake up. And so this information, the family wanted this collected long before 7 p.m., 7, 10 p.m., so that they could have at least had some sort of cooperation here. It doesn't that mean
1: that he wasn't. I mean, yeah, uh, again, I mean, maybe yeah. he wasn't drinking at all. Chanel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe there was never I, any alcohol I in his system and he was having some type of an issue. Who, who knows? Right, right, right. Um. But yeah, this is this is what we're left with now. It
0: is. And I want to put I'm going to put this here. We're wrapping up part one, but I want to put this in here. The. The luminol test, you know, you may be wondering about a luminol test and what was all cleaned up, right? What was, what was done and then cleaned up. So no luminol test was done on the apartment, although one report said that it was. So the family is left with this contradiction that they're like, which one is true? So was there different blood evidence that was cleaned up? Oh. Right. Or was there not in what is in the crime scene is what the truth is. Is what we what there is. I I We I
1: get it. have
0: been told
1: that this crime scene was compromised. Not only compromised, that's the term I'm using to keep things fair, but we had one expert in a written report who has never testified on this case mm-hmm. indicate it was a hundred percent staged.
0: That's yes. what you quoted to me, correct? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, okay, definitely. All right. And this is this is where I'm going to leave you for part one. Okay. All right. So if you're a Patreon, head on over to part two right now. If you want to become a Patreon so that you can get part two right now, do that. Now's the time now's, to join. Now's when you join. So you can get it right away. Otherwise, you're waiting a week. And I'm sorry for that. But, you know. I'm not. We, we all, all make people. our own choices. <laughs> we do. And we're going to start... The part, you know, part two is gonna start with Molly's autopsy. It's going to be information that I promise that you're not hearing anywhere else, because this is intimate information that we have obtained through the source. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's gonna be a good, good episode. But I do feel like as tradition for Crime Curious, we gotta we gotta leave our people with a laugh in their hearts. We something do. tender. We
1: need some we need a brain bath. And because yeah. I was aware of what was happening. Today, um, with our 199 and 200th episodes, mm-hmm. I found you some cute things about cats. So, this okay. is a BuzzFeed article 16 hilarious cat stories that prove cats are the weirdest. I'm not going to read you all 16, but these just kill me, right? Okay. Submitted by Casey Kicks Rocks. Oh! My one that. cat, my one cat, Earl. He licks my husband's armpits while he's sleeping. Okay, it's because you named him Earl. Earl? Like, what
0: would Earl do? <laughs> right. Earl is an armpit licker. Sorry if your name is Earl. It's funny.
1: Submitted by Chris Roll on Facebook. I recently found out that my cat Marv, these cat names are great. I love them. Hates it when I read aloud. He starts to look at me pleadingly, paces around, meows incessantly, and then will climb on top of the book and bite my wrists in protest.
0: How did she discover, or he, that Marv hates... Do people often read out loud?
1: I think some people are do are out loud readers. readers? I would never know a, that. Yeah. I should read to my cat and see what happens. I
0: tell report back. I will I must know. But I do love the name Marv too. Marv,
1: right, Earl and Marv. So this says submitted by Catherine Dalier on Facebook. My great aunt requested a portrait of Jesus for Christmas one year. She's eighty seven. Give her a break. <laughs> so I found her a nice one and leaned it up against a wall in my living room, intending to come back and wrap it later. A while later, I heard a weird scraping sound. I go into the room and my cat has the edge of the picture frame in her mouth and is slowly dragging Jesus across the room. (laughs) I yell, hey, and she drops it and ran like hell. I still don't know what she was intending to do with Jesus.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah. Uh, uh, We got some talking to do. Come with me. Yep.
1: Come with me, big fella. Submitted by Audrey Aldera. My cat licks the hairdryer every morning for 10 minutes.
0: Oh, my Lord. So weird. That is really weird. Now, this is
1: cat-like, submitted by Zoe Zoe Elsie. My cat knew how to press the release disc button on an Xbox. (laughs) I would be playing. My cat would look me dead in the eye and press the button. It's like she knew I didn't save yet.
0: I love it. Passive-aggressive. This is when it's like, the, fuck you. The cat's yes, just this, looking at you like, watch
1: me wreck your last 30 minutes. This is
0: like the partner that's like, I've told you to get off the fucking video game and just look him deep in the eye and nope. press the button. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
1: Submitted by Hannah Graser. My cat would get on the kitchen counter and eat the plastic wrap on the
0: loaf of bread. Not the bread. Just the plastic. Just the plastic. <laughs> just the plastic. Mm, I love that cellophane taste. Oh, yeah.
1: Submitted by Olson C twenty ten, my cat hates the French national anthem. If you sing it from anywhere in the house, he will find you and attack you. Oh no! So this is probably my favorite and the most awful thing ever. And I think that this is me as a cat. Okay. Submitted by Jenk forty five e six five five a nineteen. Someone needs to learn to shorten their tag name. My cat loves to steal thumbtacks from corkboards. And puts them in our shoes when we're not looking. Oh, my God.
0: Uh-huh. Slightly sadistic, cute and cuddly, but you should be slightly terrified of them. That is I you so. as a cat. I know. Like super cuddly and sweet, but then also a and little terrifying.
1: Because you've been opening up your spiritual realm. I have. You're going to love this next one. Okay. Submitted by Katna Singleton on Facebook. She just writes, scary AF. All three of my cats stare into the fireplace when the flue is open and there is no fire. They just sit there and stare at it. It scares me every single time. Oh. They just they just know. That is, It's speaking to them. There is something There's there. There is something in, that they're aware of. And we know the, cats yep. are aware of stuff. So yes. with that, I mean, there you go.
0: There's some funny cats are assholes. But I think they have a purpose. Piss. They do, and I have a little anecdote to that. This is from littlemisscat.com. Aww. The energetic power of cats and their spiritual meaning. It says, For centuries, cats have been prized for the independent companionship that they have provided humans. Legends and myths have created the image of mad cat ladies and black magical cats owned by cauldron-stirring witches, with cats themselves being acclaimed for casting spells. But cats are energetically powerful and... And they have skills that are beyond what most of us know. For example, there's a scientific example here of the healing power of stroking a cat. And scientifically what that does, Megan, is when you are stroking your cat and I can't believe how mature we are both being when I'm saying the word stroke. I'm and trying cat. not to say I did not say anything about stroking your kitty.
1: The cat has my okay. tongue. Yes. I'm biting it.
0: We're being so proud. My tongue, not the kitty. And I'm I'm proud of us. But when you stroke your cat, whatever that may mean for you. I have a cat. It releases oxytocin. Yeah, the feel-good hormone. It improves your mood. It helps you release any sure stress no. and tension that you're holding in your physical
1: body. They purr. They do. And it's like
0: she's this. She's vibrating. <laughs> the <laughs> kitty's
1: vibrating, and just you can do it, man. Oh my god. She's vibrating. Her She's making noises. She's purring, and it's just. It's very comforting. Cunning.
0: Megan, yeah. this next part in the, and I know you can't see my notes. I can't. But the next part of this article is talks about the healing power of purring. I am going to start purring. I think you should. You know, when people meditate, they do mantras. Um, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, to yeah. me, it's the same thing. Okay. So listen to your cat purr. It creates endorphins in you, it helps make you happy, it releases that oxytocin. oxytocin. And. You know, they're also said to have earth energies. So listen, you're supposed to... They have um, also can like they really, really are in tune with like mother nature and earth. And so you should pay attention to the way that they're behaving and it can give you clues into like, like when they're staring into the fireplace. And, yes. That something was speaking to them and giving her some sort of warning about that. Button.
1: You know, I read something. I saw something even on Facebook the other day, because obviously now that I have a cat, she's the first cat we've ever had must be like, I'll looking be looking at something cat. So it knows my algorithm. Mm-hmm. It's going to give me cat things. Definitely. And maybe it's in your article too. So verify with me, but it says if a stray cat shows up at your house or like at your back door, Um, you should be welcoming of the cat, not necessarily let it in, but it's chosen you and Mm -hmm. has come there for a reason. Mm -hmm. Some people say it's to protect you. Others are because they know that there's something wrong. My personal experience is that it's because there's a Tom cat and he knows my unspayed cat is inside and he wants to get at her. He wants to
0: get laid for sure.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's why men usually show up at doors in my experience. (laughs) right. For for the kitty yeah, that's inside.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Always. And and so started humans. Yes. So started humans. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And the article actually does talk about well, how cats pick you spiritually and they are there to guide you. So you don't pick a cat. A cat picks you, which is why they give you attention when they want it and not the other way around.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. She chooses when she wants attention. Yeah. The rest of the time it's you know, my daughter picking her up and carrying around the house while she's going right Well, she's protesting. <laughs> oh yeah, she's she's not happy right. about it. so yeah,
0: so there it is. Well, there. I hope that we informed people about cats and left them feeling just a little bit lighter than the information that we were presenting. but come back for our 200th episode for part two to listen to the rest of Molly's story and find out exactly how you might be able to help as well. So until, until then, <gasps> uh, keep it, it curious. Keep listening and bye-bye.
1: Bye.
0: Are you sick of giving the special people in your life the same old lame gifts year after year? Well, I am here to help you, friends. You know if you're an avid listener of this podcast, at the beginning of each episode, I shake a genuine kangaroo scrotum sack for good luck. Now you can own your own genuine handmade kangaroo scrotum sack, and not just a sack. Maybe you're looking for a bottle opener a unique back scratcher, whatever it is that you're looking for, you can find it at RuBalls.com and enter code CRIME10 for 10% off your order. That's R-O-O-B-A-L-L-S.com, promo code CRIME10 for 10% off your order. Keep it curious and keep it shaken.